Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Fintech Logs, a record-breaking Q1 of 2021 for VC investment globally. Q2 carries on in a similar way as Wealthsimple raises $750 million and Vivid Money raises $75 million. And Sotheby's accepts Bitcoin to buy a Banksy. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 526 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer and I am joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host Mel Stringer. How are you doing today, Mel? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, David? Pretty good, pretty good. I mean, you're working on a bit of, I know you can't talk about this, so I don't know why I'm even bringing it up, but you're oh, working so on a super, I know. super interesting thing. I would love to thing. talk about it. I would love to talk about it. It's the best. It's really, really good. We've got a really exciting um, team and it's a huge fintech uh, project. I did get a notification about the PR announcement, so maybe next time we could talk about it. You never know. I mean, I, I sort of dubbed this loosely until we colonize Mars, there isn't a bigger project, basically. So this is going to be super interesting to uh, to see when we when we can start talking about this one. But uh, anyway, uh, f- enough foreshadowing. Let's kind of move on uh, with uh, with what we're going to be doing. As always, uh, we're not doing this alone as much as Mel. You could just have a nice chat for the next hour, couldn't we? Uh, we are joined by some super duper awesome guests making a welcome return to the show. Livia Benisti, who is the global head of business. Business AML at Banking Circle. How's it going? It's going well, thanks, David. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Been a while, but yeah, good, good to have you back on the show and uh, good, good to catch up as well. Uh, joining Olivia and making her fintech insider debut, we have Natasha Jones, who is a early stage investor at Octopus Ventures. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me, David. I mean, it's been a pretty interesting week for like all of the money flowing into fintech right now. So we're definitely going to be cutting to you to all of these different uh, different stories to give us a that's a lot of money and some other insights that I'm sure you, you've got on the, on those things. But uh, uh, not wanting to foreshadow the show too much. We better get into it. Hey, uh, all right, let's jump on with the first story. And as I was sort of saying over on TechCrunch, fintech startups set VC records as the 2021 fundraiser raising market continues to impress. So new data indicates Q1 2021 was the biggest fintech VC quarter ever. That's huge. Like, you know, given everything that's been happening, that is a, a pretty massive thing to be uh, th- be able to be saying. So the first quarter beat the infamous second quarter of 2018 when Ant Group raised a $14 billion round on its own. Um, a lot of people have sort of written off that uh, that period just because of that that skew in it. But um, it wasn't necessary this time to, to do it. So there were 614 tracked fintech deals in Q1 2021, and that totaled a uh, 22.8 billion 
uh, of rays. So that is that is pretty phenomenal, really. I, I mean, Natasha, as I, as I sort of said, this sits well and truly in your wheelhouse in terms of the things that you're doing. And as a VC, I mean, is this scale of, of numbers that we're starting to see continue to emerge surprising? Or, I mean, is this just maybe part of where we are in the cycle with some of these organizations? Yeah, I mean, those are some impressive statistics there. And we definitely feel it in the fintech team at Octopus. We've seen a lot of exciting founders coming to raise money, which is obviously great for us because we get to see some exciting businesses um, and meet some incredible founders. I think, you know, for the Q3 and Q4 statistics, which were pretty strong, people thought it was because there was a lag where everyone battened down the hatches during lockdown one and therefore weren't raising money because they wanted to conserve cash. Startups didn't want to spend on marketing and talent. And VCs also weren't, you know, were quite reluctant to deploy capital in an uncertain time. So people thought there was a lag and founders coming to raise well because they needed to. Whereas actually now what we're seeing is founders coming to raise who don't need to. And they're raising from a position of strength because this has been a fantastic year, fantastic 2020 for a lot of fintechs. Um, and you guys talk about this week in, week out. I mean, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of digital tools and moved fintech software and tools and apps from nice to haves to business critical. And I know we'll touch on that later on in the show with things like AML and KYC, but huge teams of people now having to work from home and needing to digitize those processes. Consumers, for example, having more time to actually look at their financial well-being. Maybe they're feeling a bit vulnerable due to furloughing or the economic conditions, actually having more time on their hands to think about insurance, to think about their pension, to think about investing um, you know, for wealth simple and vivid money, which we're going to touch on later. So um, definitely an exciting time to be in fintech and lots of companies coming through with those growth metrics that are not just objectively great, but also relatively speaking great. That's to say that lots of other sectors have been negatively impacted like leisure and travel. So yeah, it's, it's a great time to be a fintech investor for sure. Yeah. And, and I guess we're on that that point, Natasha, in terms of the the, the rounds, we, we've sort of seen uh, not not quite you know, fewer, bigger, better, but definitely sort of, you know, more sort of mega rounds happening in this uh, in, in this period of time. So so do you think it is a, are we still seeing the the flurry? Obviously, your your focus is more early stage in terms of what you do at Octopus, but, but actually are we seeing m- the maturity uh, of the fintech landscape, meaning that actually we, we're sort of bifurcating the market a little bit we've got you know real early stage rounds which are a little bit smaller but there's more of them and that's great because we're seeing different slices of fintech being disrupted but we're then we're now seeing the maturity in that scale end of the play where you know really big rounds are are not as surprising Uh, like i don't want to get dull to this i remember 20 pound note being really a large amount of money when i was little but now we're talking about billions of pounds kind of uh being raised but does something track on that because i guess the average rain is getting bigger and bigger isn't it yeah i mean it would take a, a lot of pocket money to to fill some of these rounds at the moment um but i do think there's some sense to the madness and by that, I mean that, you know, as you said, lots of fintech companies are now moving from being product businesses, finding product market fit, to actually being distribution businesses. They know their product works. They know people want it. And actually having a strong war chest from these VCs, from these growth funds, really hits the accelerator button on their business models. And I personally have the belief that at the point where you start to find a product market fit, 
the right team, the right product will know how to deploy that capital in an intelligent way. So I definitely think that there's some logic to it. I also think it kind of throws down the gauntlet to where these fintech companies want to go. So if you raise a mega round at a quite early stage, you're eight times more likely to go public. And that's not surprising because obviously if you're getting 100, 200 million pound checks, being acquired becomes significantly harder. So I think we're also seeing a lot of fintech companies look towards you know, an IPO as an exit as well and those large checks are testaments of that. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely started to see more people move towards that route, haven't we, uh, in terms of, I mean, Pension B and these types of people in terms of uh, sort of floating. But uh, it is interesting. The whole, like, I, I, I think I feel like we almost feel a little bit proud of the market. Like, it feels like our, like, fintech's growing up. Look at it. Look at us. Yeah, like, we've, I know. We've made it. I know. Like, we're growing <laughs> up and we're getting there and, like, IPOs and all of these things. But, Mel, bring you into this. What, what do you think? I mean, this, this is, A, I just don't want to go through this whole podcast being like this is a lot of money but like god damn this is a lot of money but but actually it feels like you know the more money that's coming into the industry the bigger problems that we can continually be tackling so uh this feels like a good thing right absolutely it really does feel like a good thing and uh there's a really great report from cb insights that um delves really deeply into um all of the things that we're discussing here and uh, one of the things I found really interesting in that report was that um, digital lending is exploding. Um, so I think it's uh, representing a growth of uh, 100 no 203% um, based on, uh, you know, Q2 2019. So um, I think funding and deal activity in that segment is, uh, it is absolutely huge. And the same with payments as well. So a lot of these uh, companies that we're seeing that are um, going down the IPO route and as Natasha says uh, has these mega rounds really early either started out uh, being a, a payments company then moved into banking and then into digital lending so you know all of these segments are, are really closely related and I think that's why you have the emergence of so many uh, you know as we call them like super apps uh, these platform plays um, and really interesting partnerships in in the market as well so I think even if you look at um, some of the massive companies that we talk about um, in the show, like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, um, they, they've all had really interesting partnerships in um, 2021. So, uh, you know, Facebook and Shopify, for example, and, um, you know, Apple Pay, new partnership with BitPay, I think they're all really, really interesting. And it just shows that um, even if you are a, a smaller player, you can then partner with the big players. Um, and I think that becomes your exit strategy as a, a smaller startup as well. So there's lots of money sloshing around. These super apps are funding uh, the acquisition of smaller businesses as well. And then as Natasha says, I, I agree, IPO is uh, the, the logical exit Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when this all sort of started, there was no playbook for a fintech. And now there's a, a playbook for market entrance. There's a playbook for funding. There's a, you know, uh, to increase your chances of, you know, reaching the the utopian of, a, you know, a, a large exit or an IPO, depending on what your your uh, uh, your requirement is. I mean, Livia, I mean, it feels like, a, again, a better time than ever to be sort of in this industry doing these things. And the investment 
you know, investors, put your finger in here, is here, Natasha, but investors don't invest in an industry unless they think there's going to be a, a you know, major events in that industry. And, and not, not just that in terms of um, from a returns perspective, but, but actually problems still to solve. So we're not really done with it yet, are we? No, I definitely don't think we're done. Um, I, I was having a conversation with someone actually at the weekend as to the extent to which, despite all of our hopes and ambitions, once we really get into fintech, how much can fintech really do? And that, obviously, given what I do, how much does regulation stymie that? And can we ever actually change the world in the way that we want to? And should we be allowed to? Which is a whole different discussion. I think the thing I found interesting when I was reading about this story in trying to understand why why this was happening was there, you know, no cash deployed H1 2020, and then it was ramping up. Something that I saw that was super interesting, I thought was, is um, the VC world and this whole process of investments also had to adapt to going online and going virtual and building those relationships. And I'd be super interested in what Natasha has to say about this, because we've all had to learn how to have um, relationships online via Zoom. And building those relationships with clients is the same as in the VC world. And what I read was that this SF, San Francisco versus London investment personality debate um, is sort of disappeared because every relationship is now online. And that's heated up competition for investment in the major platforms and in the major apps or or companies rather. Um, And so to what extent is that competition actually driving up exit and entry values? And then that made me think, if it's competition that's driving it up, to what extent are these actually artificial forces? And we've always talked about where are these valuations coming from? Some of these valuations are insane for non-profit making companies. Um, so to what extent, it got me thinking about to what extent these values are actually overinflated and where is this going to end up? So I don't want to be the pessimistic voice. I just, it was an interesting take for me on that front. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because value is relative, isn't it? You know, so value is what somebody is prepared to pay for it, but not when it's an investment thing that has some element of return to it. But I mean, Natasha, you know way more about this than I do. What, what do you think? I was just going to respond to the virtual point, which I completely agree. It's It's been a godsend for everyone to carry their jobs, but it's been so tough building relationships. And so building a meaningful relationship with founders is just so much harder on Zoom. And so I think you know, as you said, personality starts to fall as a reason why people are, you know, accept your VC check versus another. And also, I think it means that people are more efficient. So you can put in 100 VC investor calls. Likewise, I can put in 100 startup calls in my calendar um, and really see as much as the market as I can during those working hours, which you just couldn't do before because you'd have to do it in person, that's travel time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also wanted to briefly touch upon the conditions in in the public market because, so I actually was a trader during first lockdown. Um, I was a trader on the equity floor and we saw daily like drops on the day, 9, 10, 15%. um, And now we're seeing the FTSE's up kind of 9% year to date. And I think that's also driven a lot of money from institutions into VC because there seems to be this kind of dissonance between where public market stocks are trading and where the real economy might go in the next couple of months as furlough schemes start to end, et cetera. Um, and so fintech having such a strong year seems like not only like a safe place to go, but also a really attractive place to go. And there's exits to support that as well. So I think from my perspective, it seems like, I think, David, you said this, there's just a lot of money flowing into VC as well at the moment. Mm. It is It is interesting. There's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of capital that was raised even before COVID was a thing, 
Uh, and actually, there is a there is a lot of um, funds with money that is looking for a place to to go, and that doesn't go away. So, I mean, I, that that actually is quite a good dynamic because I think the the situation in the industry is that I don't think there's very few VCs that are like dumb money right now. Uh, and I'm not just saying that, Natasha, because you're you're here, but everybody you talk to has a good grip on what good looks like and what good structure looks like and everything around that, which means the investors are being wiser, but also that the industry is growing up as well. So, I mean, I, again, I think we could talk about this for the, for the next hour uh, and, and gush about it and the impact that that will have. But the long-term effectiveness can only be positive and not just positive from an industry perspective. But but again, I mean, Livia, when we've talked before, this is all about, you know, the flurry in fintech, the change in banking, all of this stuff. It's like, you know, it's it's fun and games for us because it's like we're geeks for banking and stuff. But actually for the end consumer, like the industry and what it means to be a bank and what financial services actually is, that's cantering forwards in terms of that capability. And that, you know, when you're uh, having that bottle of wine and chatting to your friends about it, it's it's that bit that I think is the most exciting because the gap between, you know, even when I was back at Lloyds Banking Group, the gap between banking in 2012 and banking in 2021, the customer is so much better served now than, than ever before and has so much more choice. Um, so ultimately, is that is that the results that we're looking for? And really, arguably, you know, Livia, in our wildest dreams, we're always going to be disappointed in terms of where we are and where we can get to. But the customer is better off now, right? I think most customers are better off, yes. Um, the dreams and ambitions that we have for transforming finance will be individual to each of us, right? So depending on what jobs we had before and what was interesting to us. For my one, you know, my personal passion comes from financial inclusion. It's I studied development and that's what I wanted to get into. Different story how I ended up in AML. But um, I think the average consumer is certainly better off, better served, receiving better customer service and has more ready access to the services that they need and, and to their cash. In my personal perspective, we've got further to go on the less privileged and those that have fewer options with regards to access to services. Um, be it because of identity documentation or credit or whatever that is. And I think we can still do better in, in that front. But yes, on the whole, we are absolutely in a much better place. And each of us will have different particular passions about where we can probably do better. Indeed. Uh, well, the journey's still got a lot to go. I mean, 99%, some would say, I've heard. But uh, on that point, uh, we'll move on. All right. Uh, next up, we had a super interesting story talking about ridiculous raises that uh, have been happening. Uh, story was over on Finextra first. This is Wealth Simple raises $750 million Canadian dollars. Uh, in my head, I don't know whether a Canadian dollar is very similar to a, a US dollar from an exchange rate perspective. Some people are nodding. It's similar. So it's still a big amount of money then. It's not one of those sort of Zimbabwean type of translations between it. And it's like £3.50. This is still a lot of money. OK, cool. Everybody's nodding. Um, so Canadian fintech, well, simple, has hit a five billion valuation, which is crazy off the back of a 750 million funding raise. Celebrities, including Drake, Michael J. Fox and Ryan Reynolds, weird mix of people like, you know, not sure I would have thrown Michael J. Fox in the middle of those two from a funding raise perspective. But if they have to do an investor call and they're all on it, I'm definitely tuning into that one because it sounds like it will be entertaining. Uh, well, Simple began as an online investor manager and trading app and has since moved into crypto last year uh, and has recently rolled out a peer-to-peer -peer money transfer service. The new funding will be used to continue building out the product suite and to make 
uh, ever more highs to keep up with their demand. To find out more about this one, we spoke to our 11FS colleague and self-confessed wealth simple Stan Guerra Kiwana to get her take on the story. So I spent many years in Canada and I'm quite familiar with the fintech landscape and uh, how difficult and scarce it is to see uh, really brilliant fintech innovation uh, in that market. But Wealthsimple have been around. They've been around the block. Wealthsimple came in relatively early and early on managed to win over and entice uh, millennials in urban areas. So personally, it was my introduction to savings and investments that wasn't boring, complicated or required uh, for me to sit opposite and weird guy I didn't know who was going to claim to manage my money. But over the last few years, they've gone from strength to strength, uh, expanding across the country and even expanding internationally into the US and the UK. Um, They've introduced various new product lines, and that includes taxes on top of the savings and investments. They've recently also blown up uh, with a crypto trading platform and recently now have a cash app, a P2P cash app similar to the Venmo, which, you know, had not existed in Canada prior. So this hometown hero is slowly creeping into becoming a challenger. Uh, this money that they've just raised is going to be used to grow the team and, and grow their suite of products. Um, and, you know, my, my prediction really is, is that they're going to enter retail and business, well, continue in retail and enter business in a big way. So retail likely with expanding their cash account into a checking account and really doubling down on P2P as well as crypto. And for businesses, I see, you know, they're not quite doing much business stuff right now, but I see them or I can see a lot of value coming from building tools for SMEs. So um, helping them with taxes, possibly even treasury. I don't know. I uh, guess we'll see. Maybe we might have to ask Drake, who's one of the investors. Yeah, I think getting Drake on the podcast is going to be a little bit difficult. I reckon his, uh, his schedule's somewhat busy right now. Michael J. Fox, you never know. Like, we'll reach out and see what we can do on this one. Uh, but uh, given the scale of the... Can we, can uh, we well, I mean, like, I, Olivia, if you want to do the interview on that one, I think there will be a queue uh, from 11FS to, to get in front of you on the, on that one to, to, to make it happen. I mean, Natasha, this speaks a little bit to what you were saying a second ago, right? This is a company that had a... Uh, market entry point with a certain product that they've made that wildly successful in terms of what they're doing. And then they parlayed that success into being able to create more capability and more features, right? Um, are these are sort of a, an interesting playbook for, for North American fintech as, as well. Definitely. And I think what I love about Wealth Simple, it's not just about stock picking, which you know, starts to resemble a little bit gambling after a while. This is really about helping individuals, consumers grow their money in a way that's sustainable. And I think that's why it's done so well. Uh, you know, money doesn't really work that well. It's quite boring. People don't really want to interact with it. And I think while Simple have done a really good job of engaging consumers in kind of social money, and I think that's why the P2P side is, is so exciting because it's actually how people, friends, families interact and I think that's yeah going to be really powerful. Excited to see where they go. Mm, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, like, definitely, I see that on the stock side of things. But the minute people start really straying into cryptocurrency as a as a, a fuel from a, I mean, we've seen it with different organisations across the across the world right now. Some of the profitability measures are being pushed predominantly off the back of the 
you know, the, the crypto market doing so well and then a flood of, uh, you know, taxi drivers thinking this is the next hot thing and then them getting into it. But um, it's whether that advice around it, we've seen it with Robin Hood a little bit, it's whether the, the, the advice, the controls, the processes are, you know, at that scale that we really need them to be. But Livia, what, what do you what do you think on this one? Is this a, a I'm, you know, I never knew you were such a big fan of Ryan Reynolds and we should talk about that more. Um, but well, simple then, uh, like this is a good business doing well. I mean, Ryan Reynolds, I just I feel like that's kind of obvious. I'm <laughs> not challenging it. I'm with you. He's a handsome man. He is. And the proposed, I just love that. Anyway, it's a great film. Um, where were we? Well, simple. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, th- I thought the P2P thing was interesting. They'd launched P2P transfers. I was sort of thinking, where would I want that functionality? Is it on my investment and tax app or is it in my banking app? And to me, there's sort of a gap there. Like, I don't know if I want to be sending cash um, instantly from that I've made off investments. That It's a bit of a random point. It was just to me, I was like, isn't there a bit of a gap in functionality there, which I'm sure will come because they're obviously trying to put as much as they can on one platform. Um, I just found it interesting to go from investment and tax and savings to P2P. I think it makes it more interactive, right? So before it was like, okay, you've got your stocks and wealth in one side and then you've got your banking in the other. And I like the fact that they're kind of putting those two worlds together. I like it. I just think that my the money I want to send in a P2P transfer would come from my everyday banking, not from my investments and stocks and shares. Um, And I think... I think that points to actually the the Canadian market's a bit odd. Like, uh, like, sorry, any Canadians that are listening to this, I I love you guys dearly. But but the the reaction in 08 in the Canadian market was to protect all of the existing organisations rather than creating the competition we were talking about earlier on in the show. So so now actually the to your to your point, Livia, the 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 features you would expect to sit within everyday banking is not sitting in everyday banking. And wealth simple actually is a a real outlier on like financial services innovation in in the Canadian market. But uh, Mel, uh, I know you've uh, spent quite a bit of time sort of looking at, uh, well, these guys, but, you know, more broadly how that sort of plays out. So what do you think is uh, is wealth simpler? Uh, I mean, it's clearly a good investment, but uh, uh, do you think it will keep going strength to strength? Well, I, I found all of your comments really interesting. I think I would agree with Livia, actually, um, because... I think that the move into this sort of uh, homogenous, like super app can do everything is a bit premature. I think that they should hold on to their reputation of uh, really um, slick and uh, helpful and human uh, investment rather than trying to be a payments play. It doesn't really fit with their brand for me. But then as you say, David, the market is very different in Canada. Um, I used to work there uh, as well, actually. And um, it's very traditional. And as you say, they have a few big uh, bank players and everyone still has their you know, main, main bank account with, uh, with one of the big four. So it's a strange environment. And I think it dovetails really nicely with the previous story around investment. And I'm wondering if they're sort of scrambling to decide what to do with their investment. I did, I did read some uh, commentary saying that they were thinking about branching out and using that money to invest in smaller businesses pertaining to uh, insurance and mortgage products and uh, checking so maybe that's what they're trying to do that's the you know the platform um play but i mean there aren't as you say there aren't that many 
uh, fintechs coming out of Canada. So for VCs, it's sort of the obvious target for investment. And it's interesting. I think it um, sort of resonates with what's happening with uh, Brazil as well. So, you know, when we were talking about the previous story around uh, the, the huge investment rounds, two of the top 10 this year went to Brazil Brazilian companies, uh, which is kind of bizarre, really. It's really, you know, very interesting. Um, and then, of course, you've got like the European ones and uh, the US and so on. So I don't know if uh, if if Canada's sort of lacking behind and well simple will will inspire a whole cohort of new fintech brands to emerge. They've got um, the IBC is the fifth biggest bank in in Canada. I don't know how big that makes it. I should probably qualify that. Um, but they've just launched, um, I, don't, I don't even know if it's just, but they've launched a digital bank um, called Simply, which I thought was interesting timing uh, with that name. In just the as simple closes up in Simply, yeah. yeah. I, I, found that, I found that really interesting. But um, they've launched, and I think that that looks like it's tracking quite nicely so far. Um, I think it's still predominantly domestic. But I did find it interesting that like you've got a large Canadian bank that is launching a digital bank Um is that kind of mirroring where we were in a certain point? Will it work? I don't know. Uh, but it certainly it came to mind when we were just talking about this, about the maturity of the market and, and where we're seeing people pick up digital banking services in, in retail. It's also interesting when you Google it, one of the first things that comes up is, is simply safe? And I think that maybe that points to the maturity of the market in terms of retail um, client base and their trust in the market. I think more and more people would, would probably not question putting their money into Monzo or even Revolut maybe, but it's a, a maybe it's different. There's a different maturity in terms of the customer base as well. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and that that is a fascinating thing to see, isn't it? The different markets, the, you know, the trigger points, the catalysts in different markets and how that sort of plays out, you know, ultimately, hopefully we'll, we'll all get to a, a similar end point, but the, the route to get there is often, uh, often a bit weird. So I guess in summary, in the first half of the show, there's been lots of money coming in, which is ultimately probably going to be a good thing. And on that note, we better take a bit of a break. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. All right. Well, on with the second part of the show. So we have a story over on Finextra, which was, uh, I think we're sort of going from raising lots of money to saving lots of money in this one, which is uh, quite quite a good transition there. So HSBC's voice ID prevents... £249 million of attempted fraud. So HSBC's caller identification program, Voice ID, has cut telephone banking fraud by over 50% during the past year, demonstrating the value of biometric verification in the fight against scammers. The UK bank reckons its voice biometric system has prevented almost £249 million of customers' money from falling into the hands of telephone fraudsters in the last year. Dang, HSBC people have a lot of money. Um, voice ID detects whether the voice matches, which is the one that is currently held on file. I mean, Livia, you're going to know a lot more about this, but there's sort of good voice and bad voice records in this sense, isn't there? So essentially what they're trying to do is match against a good voice record for their customer to ensure that the person calling up and saying that they're them is them, right? 
Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately for me, this, this article and what I could find online just raises more questions. Um, maybe it's maybe because of what I do. I should probably caveat that being an AML expert is very different to being a biometrics fraud identity expert. And those two are still probably worlds apart. So I hope that your audience will, will cut me a little bit of slack if I say something horrendously stupid. Um, but, I mean, I do that every week and they seem to be okay with it. Don't worry. So like, um, I'm, I've, I've got a lot of slack on this one so far. You might need to lend me some. Um, but look, my first thought is who on earth is still telephone banking, which I think is probably the That's wrong thing to Same. Oh my goodness. I agree. I was just like, who? Is this in case there's a problem and you want to call up and report fraud? No, no, no. This is people that are still using a telephone to bank. Like your nan um, or something. <laughs> I, I literally was just like, I, I, maybe I just want to see introverted and I hate getting on the phone for everything. I think web chat is the best thing ever, but that is just me. Um, and that actually leads to a different interesting thing, which is for web chat fraud, um, there's biometrics around how you type, the speed with which you type, the kind of typos and errors you make. So to bring it together, the use of biometrics in this is certainly an interesting advancement. I think some are more intellectually interesting than others. Using your voice, having good or bad voice records is certainly one way of getting around other forms of identity proof. I think the bigger picture is that if we're not careful, you know, you can replace a credit card or a, an identity dock and you can get a new number on some things, not social security necessarily, but you know, you can get a new document. You can't replace your voice or a retina scan or things like that. So the bigger kind of the noise around this will be around stealing your identity via voice or stealing other forms of biometrics and what does data security look like. Ultimately, I think what it comes down to is you end up in exactly the same place that you can mimic, steal, fraud, identity, whether it's in some cases, whether it's biometric or not. What can banks do to do better? Like if this works, great. If, if people are using telephone banking, and if you think about the audience that is using telephone banking, you joked like your nan. It is though, it, it does tend to be a different generation and they aren't so adept and knowledgeable and savvy when it comes to ways in which people might try and defraud them. So if being able to call and use your voice as a form of identification is a good way of doing that, fantastic. Then let's do that for that market, um, provided we can do so in a secure way. There are other ways, there are other things. I think that chat, like how somebody types and the errors they make is a really interesting thing to look into. And there are certainly other things that can and will have to continue to be done. And I'm not sure we'll ever get away from kind of multiple forms of factor authentication either, um, because you're going to have to combine multiple ways of doing this to minimize the risk of one of those forms of identity or authentication being stolen. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, d I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm empathizing with the fraudsters on this one. But I actually can't make it through bloody RGRs for like HSBC or other banks sometimes. So I, I sort of feel like if they put the effort in to sit on hold for an hour to get through a call and then make through an RGR, they've sort of earned the money a little bit in this one. Do you know what I mean? Like rather than it just being like some quick scam at scale, like they're putting some effort in on this one. So, but it is, it is strange to, you, to your point in a, in such a digital world that so much money theoretically could be transferring uh, in it. Um, the, the other point that I made, I mean, 
mean, I'm not sure if it was just the producers of this show threatening me with uh, my slightly prima donna sort of mentality, but actually with, you know, an hour worth of, uh, don't give me that look, Livia, that was like a, yes, I've heard those things. It it was um, with an hour worth of listening to some, to audio of somebody, you can basically train an algorithm to replicate what somebody's saying anyway. So how, and, and this is where I guess, you know, fraudsters are pretty innovative, right? We've said it on the show a bunch of times before. They're probably the most entrepreneurial people out there because they're always having to stay on the the real bleeding edge of what is possible to try and scam people out of money. You sound like you're raising a PC fund for fraudsters. (laughs) I mean... I'm not bad at pitching, just uh, just saying. But yeah, if you'd like to join my seed round on this, uh, this uh, then feel free at this stage. Um, but but I guess in in that sense, though, I mean, we, the banks are always going to have to be staying ahead of this game, right? Because this sort of good voice, bad voice sort of piece on this one, this is not really that innovative. It's innovative that they're doing it at scale, I guess, in terms of a big organization. But this type of technology has been around for a decade, I think, in terms of how these things are done. Um, it's interesting that we're not seeing the sort of convergence of use of, uh, you know, two-factor for telephony when everybody has a, you know, a mobile phone and an app and like, why are we not seeing more things where you're, you know, you might want to talk over the phone because it's a mortgage or it's, you're transferring a million pounds or something crazy, but that you're not using another channel to reinforce the authentication around those things. Because, you know, we're at a point where we have all of these things at our disposal, right? So I was um, nearly victim of a fraud with BT. And actually, they do have something now where you're speaking to them. If you call them or on web chat, they say we've just sent a a PIN code to your phone. um, And you have to give them the PIN code that they generated. So I am seeing it in some areas, but I think maybe that's, I don't know if they're using it in banking because I literally do everything through an app. So I no longer know what they're doing in banking. And as head of AML, I work for, you know, corporate NFI banker. So it's not something I come across every single day. Um, but I think I think you're probably right. I, I, I do remember when I was going through that with BT thinking, oh, that's clever for the brief moment that I had to think about it. So I think I think you're probably right. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot more space in this one that we can go to. I mean, Mel, this is a, a market that's going to continue to needing to be innovative, isn't it? Is this a is this a good step in a good direction or is there a lot more to go? I think there is a lot more to go. I'm kind of intrigued um, about the investment in the uh, voice ID program because I'm wondering if it's actually to reduce the overall cost of HSBC having to investigate and recoup a lot of this money from fraud rather than actually, um, you know, on the face of it, protecting consumers themselves. Because, I mean, consumer money is protected anyway. So if, if you know, people do become victims of uh, fraud, there's all sorts of legislation in place to make sure that you're refunded by the banks or your brokerage firm or your neobank or, you know, whoever, whoever it is. Um, so it doesn't really impact consumers um, at all. But what I do think is that... Um, I found your comment interesting, David, around um, what else they could be doing with this, uh, you know, voice technology, because um, I can imagine that for people that 
uh, are driving or people that are doing something else or perhaps you're uh, you've got sight issues um, or you know you can't find your glasses so you don't want to you know mess around trying to find a tiny pin code on your tiny smartphone and um, th- there's all sorts of reasons that I could imagine it being more convenient to do banking in an automated way um, like you know hey Siri pay blah blah 10 quid for pizza last night whatever um, I can really see that happening and if they can incorporate other elements of um, two-factor authentication I think you know that that would be great and I would probably use it but I think like uh Livia I'm I don't really fancy getting on the phone with a banker and uh <laughs> trying to make a payment or something or sitting on the phone for an hour so I, I'm not really sure who's still doing that um and so I don't know if this is like a storm in a teacup type of story if that makes I sense clever marketing I think you make a really interesting point about what impact does it actually have on consumers because even if consumer money is protected and in some fraudulent schemes it, it, it actually depends how the fraud was done but I don't think that that many people are actually educated as to their rights um and there's so much fraud and it's so publicized that this is actually quite clever marketing because if you say I do think it's become a commercial um battleground and I think it's a a a win if you can show that you're better at fraud you act faster you prevent fraud and you will pay back faster i do actually think that that's now a commercial play um so i think actually what you said was a really good point that could this have some kind of other commercial game to it beyond mm-hmm. just recouping the money yeah and it's a really emotional topic so even if you get your money back the fact that you're victim mm. of fraud you know the word victim is used because i think people feel incredibly um you know, pained and, and stressed when they get frauded out of money. So, yeah, I completely agree that I think it's become quite like a commercial battlefield. I've never, I've never known somebody use the word "get frauded" before. That that feels like it. Feel, it feels like we've we've created terminology like "ah, uh, oh, I've just been frauded." Like it's uh, what, but this is what VCs anyway. do, David. We make up words. <laughs> Well, I mean, if it's if it's the next investor potential, then uh, I'm sure you'll start seeing it on people's decks at some point. But uh, uh, all right, we need to we need to move on and uh, uh, and get going because there's a couple of other stories that we own. Speaking of super apps, and a few people sort of brought it up in in the context of what we're doing. This is a story over on uh, TechCrunch. Vivid Money raises 73 million to build a European financial super app. Um, this is a really interesting one. I mean, German startup Vivid Money raised 73 million, Series B, so they've sort of been out there in the investor space before. Uh, investors in this one are including Rivet Capital. Um, following today's funding round, Vivid Money has reached a valuation of 436 million, which is pretty significant in terms of where they're doing. They're building everything on top of uh, good friends over in Berlin, Solaris Bank, uh, for all of their infrastructure. Uh, the company's letting you send, receive, spend, invest, and save in a dozen different ways that they're sort of setting out to do. Uh, Vivid Money offers a free uh, metal debit card, subscription control, spending breakdown reports, uh, and a number of other uh, features that I think were coming to be quite familiar with sort of European fintechs, really. And in addition, Vivid Money offers a stock trading uh, facility with fractional shares. So you can invest in stocks and ETFs uh, at no commission at that point as well. Uh, similarly, you can buy, hold and share cryptocurrencies popping up again. That's where some revenue is going to be. We heard from Alexander Emishev, the CEO and co-founder of Vivid Money, to tell us more about the investment. Let's hear from him now. You know, I'm super excited to get them on board. 
Greenhouse Capital is an amazing team supporting fast-growing companies like Vivid. I mean, imagine we are less than one year old since launch, but we are already in four major European markets, in Germany, Spain, France, Italy, with a full product offering from banking, uh, I mean, accounts, cards, payments, to stocks and ETF investing and even crypto. We want to introduce our services to customers in three to five other European countries in the next 12 months and expand our product portfolio with more savings and investing products and invest heavily into education of customers as well to help them make smart decisions about their investments. But the ultimate goal is still the same, help customers grow their money. We, we see right now enormous demand for our service. So we are really investing heavily to bring that to all markets. It's, it's interesting, this trend on, I mean, Mel, you touched on it a minute ago, super app. I, I mean, everybody wants to be, I mean, it's that point where everybody wants to be the marketplace, everybody wants to be the platform, but not everybody can be that platform. And actually with super apps, you probably got to have a good app before you get to a super app uh, in terms of that setup. Like I, I worry a little bit by doing so much functionality so quickly you're a little bit of a sort of a Swiss army knife rather than being one thing really, 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 really good in the way that we were describing with uh, Well Simple did. They've gone through that process. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think on this one? That like It doesn't seem to be stopping the march towards functionality and features or geographical expansion. So uh, um, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't really get what they're trying to be. I mean, apart from perhaps another revolute or something um and in fact actually TechCrunch calls uh, calls them revolute competitor um i mean i can understand that if you are built on uh, solaris bank and gee, they've already got their strategic partnerships with visa um it makes it super easy to just bolt on new things um product config is is there they can just add additional things um they can partner really easily um yeah, so it's sort of, uh, you know, the Lego blocks are all in place, but they don't actually talk about their customers, really. And I don't know how many customers they currently have. They just talk about adding additional features and functionality. So I think, as you say, it's like a Swiss Army knife proposition. Maybe they feel that um, at this point in the evolution within uh, Europe, they need a big bang launch with a load of sophisticated stuff in order to attract anybody at all. Maybe uh, Europeans don't have patience um, for smaller player adoption. Mm. I love the way we're referring to Europeans like it's not us anymore. Yeah, look, look, so look, look at us in a post-Brexit world <laughs> referring to those Europeans. Um, but I guess in those different markets, they're talking about, you know, Germany, you know, Germany's a funny old market, like N26, even, at, you know, starting there struggled a little bit. But Spain and France are, and, and actually Italy, they're a bit underserved, aren't they? Really, Spanish fintech hasn't really blown up. Uh, Italian fintech hasn't really sort of blown up. So potentially if they get get to those markets and can acquire enough of the, you know, gain enough of the market share, then there is potential for it. But, but yeah, no, in this one, I would expect an announcement to say, because we're doing really well in acquiring a lot of customers in this thing, we've gone on to do this thing well too. Um, but hey, uh, if Ribbit have seen enough in a investor deck that they think they're uh, able to go and acquire a, a good market share, then uh, I'm probably wrong. Uh, what, what do you think, Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I actually completely agree with, with Melsburn. I think this is a massive advert for Solaris Bank. And the way that you can build products so quickly with players such as this in the market now, 
um, rapidly scale up functionality in the way that Vivid have. When I was hearing you talk, David, though, there wasn't really a functionality that you didn't mention. You know, they do crypto, they do saving, they do payments. So, um, you know, I think focus is great for product development. It's also great for customer mindshare because then, you know, for example, Robinhood, I know I'm getting stocks from there. Wealth Simple, I'm getting investor products. And I think having a lack of focus so early on slightly worries me a little bit. But, you know, it's it's TBD on perhaps they're doing really well on customer acquisition, as you said, in this, in this market. Yeah. Doing so well in it, you don't have to talk about it. It's not even a problem. You don't have to talk about customers. All right. Uh, there's like a billion things that have happened this week. And we're going to rattle through a few of them uh, in terms of the stories that we didn't get to cover. Uh, Mel, do you want to start with the first one on these? Because uh, I think we're going to have to go at light speed, aren't we? Yes. Thanks, David. Uh, so the first one is over on uh, Business Insider, and uh, it's a $4.3 billion fintech darling Marketa is planning an IPO as early as June. The payments processing startup Marketa plans to make its IPO paperwork public on May 14th and is targeting a listing mid to late June to sources close to the company told Insider. Insider previously reported the company confidentially filing its IPO prospectus with the SEC in February. Goldman Sachs is leading the listing along with JP Morgan, uh, said one of the sources uh, who asked not to be identified because the information is private and both banks are customers. The company last raised $150 million in May of 2020 at a $4.3 billion valuation, but that could nearly triple to between $10 billion and $15 billion when it goes public. A representative for Marketa declined to comment on the IPO plans. So this IPO has been rumoured for quite a while. Um, and yeah, I've read in a few places that uh, I think it's rumoured to be around 15 billion when it goes uh, when it goes public. I think, you know, Marquette has got some really interesting customers and have helped really cool companies both uh, in the UK um, and in Spain and uh, across the pond as well. So uh, DoorDash and Instacart and Uber, for example, um, and it partnered with uh, with Goldman Sachs as well. Um, to to issue cards for its own uh, upcoming debit cards, so I can totally see the uh, the interest and why IPO would be um, a good idea at the moment. But who knows if it will actually happen? Back over to you, David. Yeah, I mean, Marketa have been on an absolute tear to sort of help other organisations get to, into financial services for probably like the last three to five years. Um, but we've, I mean, we've had Jason Gardner on the, the podcast a couple of times in the past, who's their CEO. Let's reach out. We'll get him on the show. He'll come and tell us about it, I'm sure. All right. Next up, we have story over on Finextra. It was controversial fintech Lannister scores FCA approval. Do you know what? I'm, I just think of, uh, if you haven't seen Sharon O'Dea's tweets on this one, she's pretty convinced Lannister at this stage is some sort of interpretive art form rather than actually a thing. But I think this dispels it because I'm not sure the FCA approve uh, capability to, to give them uh, e-money licenses unless they actually have their, uh, you know, at least their forms filled out correctly. So uh, Lannister says it has now secured the regulator's approval to operate as an e-money directive, uh, agent uh, of payments firm Modular. Uh, as an AMD agent, Lannister can distribute and redeem electronic money on behalf of Modular, meaning the firms can offer its customers digital accounts to send and receive payments. Uh, Lannister had originally been talking to the FCA about securing a full banking license for its product, a debit card that links up to eight bank accounts to help customers better manage their finances via polymorphic technology and open banking. 
I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna throw polymorphic uh, technology into a, a sales sentence, it's not for customers, that is it? Uh, my mum doesn't know what that is. Um, in November, the FCA issued a warning to the would-be investors in the startup, stating the firm was providing services and products without authorization. So it's been a bit of a rocky start for, for Lannister. Uh, do you know what? I've seen some of the advertising for those guys recently as well, and I just don't quite know, still know what they are. You know, and actually, we've gone from them, you know, advertising it like Anthony Joshua boxing to an advertisement that looked like it was geared towards. Uh, the older generation in terms of what they were doing to uh, it being a millennial-based capability. for uh, like So it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I sort of wish them well and hope they get to market and hope they make a, a, a go of it. Uh, but I'm probably with Sharon on this one, which is like, I think there's probably a lot of weird and wonderful turns to go. Anyway, over to you, Mel. Thank you. So the next story is uh, over on CNBC, and it's that Bitcoin is coming to hundreds of US banks this year, says crypto custody firm NYDIG, or N-Y-D-I-G. How am I pronouncing that? Is that right? N- NYDIG. NYDIG. Oh, NYDIG. NYDIG. Brilliant. So for the first time, customers of some US banks will be able to buy, hold, and sell Bitcoin through their existing accounts, according to crypto custody firm NYDIG. They have partnered with a fintech giant, Fidelity National Information Services, to enable U.S. banks to offer Bitcoin in coming months with hundreds of banks enrolled. Until now, Bitcoin adopters have relied on apps from new generations of fintech players like free trading brokerage Robinhood, payment giants PayPal and Square, or crypto-centric firms like Coinbase. Banks, on the other hand, have steered clear of Bitcoin for retail customers only recently announcing plans to allow rich wealth management clients to be able to wager on the cryptocurrency. Banks are now asking for Bitcoin because they can see their customers sending dollars to Coinbase, Kraken and other crypto exchanges, according to the president of NYDIG. More people would own Bitcoin if they could do so through their existing banks, according to a survey commissioned by NYDIG. Well, I'm not surprised that uh, that was the result of the survey, but I'm not. Well, I know that you shouldn't disagree with, uh, you know, <laughs> empirical evidence, but I'm not sure I actually agree because I think that although, um, you know, making uh, Bitcoin more mainstream is uh, a really good thing, and certainly if you hold any Bitcoin, it, c- it can't be a bad thing. I think one of the attractions is that it's uh, on on different uh, apps and certainly the same thing with uh, lots of different cryptocurrencies. Um, there's something more compelling about having it um, in a in a separate uh, a separate app with a, a more modern experience than a traditional uh, US banking experience. Uh, in my opinion, I don't know if that is a bit contentious or if you guys agree or disagree with that. I think it, I think it's interesting because I think I wonder if Nidig are, are sort of aiming less at uh, really big banks, but more to community banks. And actually, I mean, it's really interesting. There's such a spread there in terms of capability across that market that if they're aiming more at the community banks who have not sort of rejuvenated their technology in the way that they need to, then and they are seeing money leaking out of their system to to Coinbase or somebody else, then then actually it might make the right type of functionality to sort of stem some of that that changes. And then bizarrely, I mean I, I've sort of 
go back to the same point I made a few times. It's like Revolut are making a crazy amount of money off uh, of uh, you know cryptocurrency right now, and a lot of other organizations are. So it might open up revenue streams for those guys, even if it might all turn out to be some sort of weird and wonderful fake money Ponzi scheme that nobody ever really thought was a real thing. You never know, right? But we, we live and learn on these things. Never gamble with money you can't afford to lose, people, is what I'm probably saying. But uh, right, we better wrap up on the next one. So another story over on TechCrunch. This is Alt.Bank. Uh, Brazil's latest fintech targeting the unbanked raises 5.5 million. 5.5 million just doesn't seem like a lot of money anymore, does it? Like after all of those really big numbers. Uh, in their Series A, uh, Alt.Bank, a Brazilian neo-bank, announced this raise led by Union Square Ventures. And like many fintechs, Alt.Bank has a strong social mission and pays commission for referrals uh, that the last of the customer's lifetime. That's pretty impressive. To drive home the mission and really target the unbanked, they've designed an app that can be used by the illiterate, uh, which is ironic seeing as I struggle to read that. Um, the Instead of using words, users can follow color-coded prompts to complete a transaction. The company has also plans to launch credit products soon. According to the, the company, close to a million people have already downloaded the Android app. Uh, the company's core offerings include a debit card, prepaid card, uh, Pix, which is similar to Zelle, uh, a savings account, and even telemedicine visits via a partnership with a network of healthcare clinics throughout the country. I mean, this sounds sort of interesting, doesn't it, actually, in terms of what they're doing. If they've had a million people tapping into this already, I mean, the Brazilian market is a bit weird given the amount of people that are there, but um, it just shows, we all sort of talk about, uh, you know, overcharged and underserved, and there is a huge amount of people in that market that are, you know, very much underserved or very much overcharged by the traditional market. So, you know, good to see another organization coming in with a very different proposition uh, not quite sounding as buzzword bingo as we've sort of seen some of the other ones, but really sort of setting out to do good. All right, that is pretty much all that we have for you this week. There is one last story, though, that appeared over on uh, Business Insider to fill out our and finally slot, which is uh, Sotheby's will now be accepting cryptocurrency, starting with an auction for Banksy's love is in the air. Do you know what? I feel like there's a Banksy bit of artwork going for sale like every 15 seconds at this stage didn't like the last one that went up at Sotheby's like burst into flames or something I think yeah I think so right? I think um it... yeah wasn't that something to do with uh, an EFT though yeah I think some people bought the artwork and then burnt it and then made money off it by producing an NFT which is my brain hurts yeah, my brain, right, that just yeah. makes my brain hurt. Anyway, so Sotheby says it will uh, accept cryptocurrencies for Banksy's Love is in the Air artwork in an upcoming auction. The company announced Tuesday it would accept Bitcoin and Ether via Coinbase in exchange for the artwork. This feels a bit weird. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, talked to anybody from Sotheby's or if you've been to Sotheby's, but it, I imagine it's what it feels like to go to, like, Buckingham Palace. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, is this, like, you know really old institutions sort of getting down with the kids in terms of the, you know, adopting cryptocurrency and trying to sort of do something cool? Or And do you think they really think that this is a thing? I mean, I'm not sure I really even think cryptocurrency is something you should buy something with right now, you know? Yeah, it feels a bit like the Aberdeen dropping their vows. Is this Sotheby's saying, you know, we've got to do something to engage younger audiences, let's accept Bitcoin, but probably caveated, they'll probably transfer it straight back into you know, fiat as soon as they receive it. So I'm not I'm not sure if this is going to last, but I've certainly enjoyed the... the maybe, maybe the angle on this one, though, is like, so 
uh, I mean, I've had many of arguments about uh, Mel, you can uh, test to this one on our internal Slack with uh, 11FS, but I've had many arguments with Simon Taylor about this one on, on our Slack about NFTs are just mental. Like NFTs are just crazy. You're buying you're buying a carbon receipt of like the thing. You're not buying the thing. So, but it does point to people with lots of cryptocurrency having more money than sense or for more funny money than sense potentially. So is this Sotheby's going, do you know what those crypto people, they've got more money than sense. Like actually, is this actually quite shrewd from those guys because they're gonna be able to sell it, you know? Yeah, I think it is. Well, also another another thing that I think is really cool and interesting is around uh, like fractional investment in arts. And I think the cryptocurrency play and NFTs could be uh, a way to democratize uh, really elite art for more people. And uh, actually, uh, referring to the uh, original point you made at the start of the show about this amazing project that we're working on, um, I had a really interesting um, conversation with a group of people around um, buildings and using NFTs and fractional investment to sell uh, digital uh, or fractions of a, a digital asset that's been drawn up, you know, via digital twins, and then using that money to f- to fund the real world asset. So I don't agree in, you know, burning art and creating an NFT, but I do think that this is a really interesting way of uh, allowing more people to to invest. And I know that's not explicitly what uh, Sotheby's are saying, but I do think that's the direction that the market will go in. Definitely. I can't help but think digital art could just be a screensaver. It's definitely not a concept that I think the same. What would that what would that look like in your home? <laughs> it, it it does. And therefore there's no value in it. This is this is the this is the argument. Like I know so Simon's uh, Simon's off uh, off work at the moment. I'm sure an announcement that'll uh, come out soon about uh, baby arrival, baby on the way. I don't know if I've just announced it on the podcast, probably have done. Um, but congratulations to Simon and Haley in terms of the announcement <laughs> uh, the arrival of their baby. Uh, but if you're listening, Simon, it just doesn't make sense, okay? NFTs don't make any sense. You're not buying the real thing because anybody can replicate it. Natasha's going to rip off my screensaver on my desktop as soon as I post it, and then I don't own it anymore. So it's uh, it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense. But also, it doesn't make any sense, and it makes me feel like an old man, like, immediately. So I was which, wondering which, in this conversation, are we all just sounding like our grandparents? Like, yeah, <laughs> I, like, think but I, I think I we are. I understand it's virtual. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the I think we are, and I. I well, I, that's no, the sad was, part about it. No, no, that's the saddest part. No, no, the saddest part is that when I read this, I was like, "Gosh, well, now that art firms are under the Fifth Money Laundering Directive, I wonder how they're going to do source of funds checks on the crypto." That's the saddest thing that could have come out of this story. Is that that's such a mature thing to say? Wow. No, it's an AML thing to say, and unfortunately, that's what I do. So. Not not great dinner party time. It's amazing but... <laughs> I ever get invited out. It's something I say regularly. I mean, fin- fintech inside of dinner parties. I, I feel I feel like as soon as the as soon as we're allowed back out in the real world, I think that's the type of thing we need to be arranging at this stage. But uh, all right, guys. Sadly, we're going to have to wrap up though. That's all we have for you this week. Uh, that's all the news that we have for all on the show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Livia? Um, LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, at Livia Benesty, I think. Yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you got like some sort of online pseudonym you're going by that you, uh, you've just yeah. dropped. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a much cooler alternative version of me that doesn't do AML stuff. Um, no, I'm good. just not very good at Twitter, but LinkedIn's probably better. 
Awesome. Uh, Natasha, where can people learn a little bit more about you and the work you do at Octopus? Same here. I'm a bit of a LinkedIn fiend um, and also have a Twitter at Natasha Jones VC. So yeah, hit me up. Very good. Mel? Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter at Melissa4x. Very good. Uh, and similar to Natasha and Olivia, you can find me lurking mostly on LinkedIn these days. Uh, and thank you very much for, for listening. If you did like what you've heard, then subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It super duper helps us uh, make the show better. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Uh, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you really want to, uh, email us on podcast at 11FS com. I feel like we should open up some sort of IVR at this stage, given the conversation earlier on around uh, calling in, but uh, I'm not going to give up my mobile phone number on this one. I thought about it for a split second, decided it was a really bad idea. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Hope you did enjoy the show. Goodbye. <laughs>